0: Welcome back to another episode of the Preble Hall Naval History Podcast. I'm Claude Barraby, Director of the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. And our guest for this episode is Samantha Sauer from the Maine Maritime Museum. Samantha, welcome.
1: Hi, Claude. Thanks. Is
0: this your first time to Annapolis? It is. Welcome. This is great. So this is the first time seeing the oldest Navy museum in the country.
1: It is, and it's pretty inspiring.
0: Good, that's what we're thats what we shooting for. Uh, you're here for the McMullen Naval History Conference. What are you gonna be presenting on?
1: Um, today, uh, this week for the mm-hmm. conference, I'll be presenting on engaging undergraduates with experiential learning, uh, opportunities to increase accessibility to both naval and maritime collections.
0: How do you define experiential learning?
1: Um, It's like hands-on learning. So internships, student faculty research, um, applied research opportunities, but with a built-in reflective component. So you're not only going out in the field and doing something and gaining experience, um, transferable skills, but there's also documentation and a mindfulness to reflect and uh, learn from the experience as well.
0: Now, your position at Maine Maritime Museum in Bath, Maine, a great historic community, and anybody listening to this should never go to bath, should never invest in a house so that, you know, some of us can, <laughs> can have a chance at buying a house up there. Uh, tell us what your position is and what, how you do your job.
1: Sure. Uh, Well currently I serve as Director of Curatorial Affairs with Maine Maritime Museum and I've been in the role for a little over a year now. Um, And so in this capacity I oversee our collections and exhibitions programming. So um, both our artifact collection as well as our archive and special collections in the Nathan R. Lipford Research Library uh, in addition to our permanent and special exhibitions programs.
0: And that's a special museum because Bath was one of the shipbuilding centers of the 18th century. I mean, it still has Bath Ironworks, obviously. But I think at one time, weren't there 16 shipbuilders in Bath?
1: It is known as the City of Ships. So the museum is right down the road from Bath Ironworks. um, And it's just an incredible legacy of shipbuilding past and present.
0: What are some of your favorite artifacts that you've seen so far that you've worked with
1: who well, that's a tough question um, you know and I'm still very much learning the collection sure. um, I'm fortunate to learn from an incredible team who have been on our staff for a very long time and I joke that I'm getting my sea legs um, but in terms of learning about our collection we have a pretty incredible small craft collection so we have over 110 small craft materials on our campus which is over 20 acres so in addition to our permanent and special exhibition galleries we also are stewards to two sites on the National Historic Registry oh. of uh, Historic Places Including the Percy and Small Shipyard, um, as well as the Donnell House, which is interpreted as a Victorian shipbuilder's family home.
0: I've been obviously to Maine Maritime Museum since I grew up not too far from there, but I, I'm still shocked that it's 20 acres of, of, of what responsibility for you all. Um, what kind of outreach do you do with students, and how, do, how have you used artifacts to work with them and teach them?
1: Sure. So the curatorial staff work really closely with our education team, um, and our education team implements a range of public programs as well as K-12 school programs. Um, so really thinking mindfully about meeting um, you know state national learning standards to enrich the curriculum, but also adult learners. Um, and we have an incredible team of docents um, and a really vibrant volunteer program, uh, so really engaging lots of different audiences. And so When crafting programming, it's very based in terms of connecting with our collections. So our curatorial team works really closely to think about how to engage visitors with object-based learning, Mm -hmm. um, calling upon our collections either in the gallery or our digital collections online.
0: What do you think resonates most um, with visitors and students if there is a difference?
1: Mm. Well, one of the the things I try and keep in mind is, um, you know, we're all coming to the museum, whether on site or online, um, for different reasons, and so we can all connect with our collections, with our stories, in different capacities. And so, um, being mindful that, you know, we are stewards of a collection of the past, but how can we connect it to the present to really, um, you know, recognize that our audience is part of this ongoing story. Um, so I try and, uh, you know, when I meet our visitors um, or kind of connect with researchers who are visiting the Nathan Arletford Research Library, um, you know, just really get to know, like, what are you interested in? How can we help? Um, and it's really more of a conversation. So I'm always surprised. Um, and it's it's a really neat, special place.
0: Do you give them a list of potential artifacts to work with to sort of tailor things or do you wait for them to kind of come through or do you take the initiative, say these are the items that we're going to use and this is how we're going to use them?
1: Um, that's a great question. I think it can really depend on a, a visitor or audience need. Um, so for example, one recent collaboration that our curatorial staff uh, did with our education staff uh, was we worked with undergraduate students at the main college of um, uh, art and design. Um, so Mecca. And uh, with that collaboration um, was a first-year class, um, so there were a lot of different curricular objectives with the class in terms of engaging students with um, how to do research, how to access primary sources, and the focus at the main College of Art and Design is very focused on practicing art. So thinking about how as potential practicing artists, um, students could learn from an informal learning environment like a museum or art gallery and how to call upon the collection and really tease out the different stories and think about their own potential artwork that they mm-hmm. would create and then also display. So when we did this partnership, um, we curated a list of potential artifacts and um, archival materials for students to uh, conduct research with and gain inspiration from and then they could really dive in and tease out different stories and make their own personal connections from this um, shortened list. Um, our collection includes over 20,000 artifacts and millions of archival materials so um, it helped to kind of have a short list with with that particular collaboration.
0: It's 20,000 plus manuscripts
1: uh, 20,000 3d art, um, artifacts right in the and collection. Then-
0: what about, manu- like, do you have a lot of manuscripts, logbooks, et cetera?
1: Correct. So in the research library, we're home to um, many, many linear feet, um, correspondences, uh, ship plans, blueprints. Um, we have material from Bath Ironworks as well. Um, and so really thinking, you know, what can we tease out and make available to mm-hmm. researchers while also being good stewards? I
0: didn't realize that. So do you have... Uh, sort of a special relationship with Biw. There are listeners who may not. I mean, I know we have a lot of Navy, uh, maritime, and maritime listeners that are aware that Bath Iron Works currently builds uh, just Navy destroyers. You know, it, it's built frigates, et cetera, in the past, but.
1: So we have a fantastic relationship with BIW. Um, They're right down or right up the road, I guess, depending on what direction you're coming from. Um, So they're fantastic community partners and neighbors. And one of our permanent exhibitions is actually just focused specifically on telling the Bath Ironworks story. And many of our volunteers and docents are um, either closely affiliated with BIW today Mm -hmm. or they're retired from the institution. So we're really fortunate to continue to learn from them and help not only preserve, but engage um, visitors right. with BIW Story on site, but also online.
0: I know, Unfortunately, we don't have enough uh, folks here for docents. We have volunteers at the front desk who, and the ship model shop incredibly helpful. They they know the collection, uh, but we don't usually give tours unless it's a special purpose, especially because we've got such a high volume of classes coming in from the Naval Academy. We're a direct teaching museum. How do you go about Working with the docents to ensure that they get, uh, the proper training. I mean, again, these are people, these are the frontline people. They engage with the public every day. They devote an incredible n- number of hours to helping a museum or, or whatever. How do you work with them?
1: Sure. Well, we we're really fortunate on our team at Maine Maritime Museum to have a dedicated full-time volunteer program manager who is incredible. And so she's part of our education team, and she's really not only a recruiter but also a point of contact to helping facilitate communication between volunteers, docents, and our professional staff. Um, we have about 250 volunteers um, as part of our group museum campus. Um, Some are seasonal, some are year round. And so um, depending on a department or area of interest, we have different dedicated staff in each department who are point persons um, to help facilitate either volunteer onboarding and training. Um, So for example, in the curatorial department, we have volunteers who help um, with collections inventory with our 3D artifact collection. Um, They help with various research requests or helping facilitate um, you know, digitizing or creating finding aids to our research library, and um, they are incredible. So they're just a fantastic team to work with and learn from. Some of our volunteers have been involved with the institution for decades. Wow.
0: That's another thing that struck me the last time I was up at Maine Maritime Museum, and especially now as, as director of the Naval cam Museum. We only have nine people here, and we were at five people, I think, when I came in uh, 11 years ago. Mm. And this is for a 40,000 square foot facility, four levels, four decks. Um, I was struck by how many are with the Maine Maritime Museum. I mean, it's, it's what, 40 or 50 people plus all, all the volunteers.
1: We have about um, 22 full-time employees okay. currently. And then we have um, part-time staff and seasonal staff as well. So we have a, a tight-knit crew. Um, right. I'd classify us as a, as a smaller mid-sized museum. Um, but there's incredible institutional memory, um, again, kind of, not only volunteers who have been on our staff for decades, but staff who have been on our team for decades and then retire and then return as volunteers. Really? Which, um, again, as someone who's still getting their sea legs, has just been incredible to learn from and not necessarily stand in the footsteps, but on the shoulders of some of my colleagues. That's
0: amazing. And that institutional knowledge that they are able to retain. Let's get back to your... Your background. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, to me before the podcast that you've been over at Maine Maritime Museum for a year. What did, how did you get there? What was the journey you went on for this position?
1: Sure. Well, my background is um, in museums. So I have a terminal graduate degree in historical administration. Um, so the care and management of cultural heritage sites like museums, archives, his, um, historic sites. Um, and I earned that from Eastern Illinois University. I was always interested in stories and connecting people with topics Um, But also getting them excited about uh, topics. So as an undergrad, I studied history and film studies, right? Mm. Um, Both different platforms to tell and share stories and different ways to engage audiences. Um, So I grew up um, working in different libraries and archives, fortunate to have different internship experiences, Um, Right out of graduate school, I uh, did a one-year position at the Illinois State Museum as a museum educator. Mm -hmm. So really working across different departments and seeing, well, how do we not only preserve different types of collections, but also, um, you know, engage others with that content. Um, Yeah, and then from there, I worked at a hands-on science center in Little Rock, Arkansas for a few years. Uh, Not long enough to develop a proper Arkansan (laughs) drawl. Um, But it was incredible because it's the oldest museum. It's Museum of Discovery, um, the oldest museum in the state of Arkansas. And so there's a cultural heritage collection. Uh But in 2012, 2013, they shifted their mission to focus on um, science, technology, technology, engineering, and math. So really thinking about that interdisciplinary connection. And it was fantastic because not only did I get to continue to learn, which is really important to me as a lifelong learner, but I got to go on the road and um, engage audiences, underserved populations, mm-hmm. K-12 through 12 students um, with this content and help connect folks with the the museum story.
0: That must have, So coming from Chicago, one of the high, uh, largest urban areas in the United States, to Little Rock, which had served a lot of rural folks, that must have really helped when you came over to or went over to... Maine Maritime Museum because M- Maine is a little bit of both. I mean, it has you know Portland, which is a pretty large urban area, but then it's got a it's it's very rural. People don't realize. Yeah,
1: yeah um, we I, I try not to compare Arkansas and Maine too often together um, <laughs> as, as contrasting locations. <laughs> Yeah, but um, in between Arkansas and Maine, um, I worked at a private liberal arts college in Illinois for just under seven years, um, leading the campus museum and archive and teaching in the history department. So, working with a completely different audience, working with completely different content. And I loved um, the opportunity to kind of balance that stewardship and storytelling. Um, But after, you know, almost seven years, we were ready for a Chance to see more of the country, um, dive into a different topic, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a great professional growth opportunity.
0: One of my favorite naval artifacts is is actually in Chicago at the Museum of I keep messing up the name of it. it's Museum of Science and Industry. Mm-hmm. M.S.I. The U. Uh, the U five hundred five captured by Captain Dan Gallery during World War II.
1: Pretty big artifact. That's a big. <laughs> that's a,
0: that's what we call a ma- a macro artifact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's wonderful what they've been able to do is have this German U boat in there inside. Uh, perfectly preserved, restored, and uh, it's just a, a magnificent to, to walk through there. Samantha, uh, again, getting back to the presentation, I would really like to get into the nuts and bolts of that uh, about experiential learning and how you are all experiencing it, uh, forgive me, uh, at Maine Maritime Museum.
1: Sure. Um, well, can I share a case study from Please. when I was at the college beforehand? Absolutely. Because it's really helped kind of influence my current thinking and, um, Although I wear the hat of Director of Curatorial Affairs, I really identify as an educator and public Mm -hmm. historian. And so, you know, not only being a steward of our collection, but thinking about, you know, that engagement aspect of it. So um, at Illinois College, which is a private four-year institution, it's the oldest school in Illinois, founded in 1829. Wow! Um, so for a hot minute in the 19th century, it was bigger than Chicago <laughs> for a very hot minute. Um, and so I was the first person to, to lead both the campus museum and the campus archives. And so one of the special collections at Illinois College um, are the papers of the late former U.S. Congressman Paul Finley. Um, who represented the 20th District of Illinois um, from uh, 1961 to 1983. Um, And so one of the case studies I'm going to share this week at McMullen um, is about engaging students uh, with the Paul Finley Collection at Illinois College specifically investigating what his undergraduate experience was like. Um, he attended the college from 1939 to 1943. Um, and then looking at the time period when he was part of the Naval Reserves, and then when he went and served um, as a lieutenant junior grade as a naval supply officer um, on the island of Guam. So really looking at how did this time period as a young adult, as an emerging um, Professional, um, you know, in his early 20s. How did this time period, specifically in his service during World War II, influence him later in life as a U.S. congressman, where, you know, he went on to advocate for um, agriculture sales, not only nationally, but internationally for famine prevention, increased diplomatic relations in the Middle East, um, but also was a lead author with the War Powers Act in 1973. So how did his service during World War II impact his later service in the U.S. House of Representatives? So how do you engage, you know, 18 to 22-year-olds with this topic, um, who maybe don't connect with the story of a Politician from mm-hmm. the mid 20th century who maybe don't feel that sense of connection. Um, and so, one project we did was really engage students with hands on learning opportunities to really roll up their sleeves and work with the Finley collection um, from the ground up, in some ways, you know, doing inventories, helping rehousing in the museum, working behind the scenes in the archive, and really establishing both physical control of the collection but also making it available for on and off campus scholars.
0: So you really are empowering them
1: at the same time. Right. Um, as a small liberal arts college thinking mindfully about the students as emerging experts and active stakeholders. So how can the museum and archive really um, help implement the, you know, the, the strategic purpose of the the parent institution with empowering the students to become leaders um, with those transferable skills. So that experience and working directly with students and engaging the public with collections has meaningfully influenced my work now at Maine Maritime Museum and thinking about um, not only permanent and special exhibitions, but really supporting our education team, our volunteers. And so um, it's it's been really exciting.
0: Wow. What kind of materials are in the Finley collection?
1: Um, So Illinois College, uh, my former institution, uh, is the repository for both his um, professional papers serving in Congress for 11 consecutive terms, as well as his personal collection. So um, he was a meticulous, um, you know, ad hoc archivist and historian. So scrapbooks documenting his high school and college experience, which when you're thinking about connecting audiences with collection, what an incredible um, opportunity to connect current students with you know um, that sense of place in terms mm-hmm. of um, you know how does our current how does the current student body connect um, with different generations past and present um, and then in, in addition to his. Uh, professional papers, uh, his time after office. Um, Finley passed away in 2019 at the age of 98 um, and continued to be very active after leaving office in 1983. Did you get a chance to meet him? I did. I was incredibly fortunate and honored to work really closely with the late Mr. Finley, as well as his family, and consider it a great honor to help continue in some ways to increase access to the collection Mm -hmm. and um, learn from that experience personally and professionally.
0: So I, I, in my position, I've gotten to know a lot of, especially the older alumni from the nineteen fifties and the ni- early nineteen sixties, but mostly the nineteen fifties. And when I have lunch with them, I I get these stories that you wouldn't normally get. My uh, one of the historians who was here for fifty years, just retired five years ago, uh, would tell me stories about the class of 1911, 1912. And I would go to Jim, how do you know these stories? He says, well, when I first got to the museum in sixty seven, sixty eight these men were in their seventies and eighties. So I would meet with them to get those stories. So he had a hundred years behind him and I've tried to get a few of those stories myself. Uh, and so you're able to ask them a little more probing, probing questions and provide context in your, your conversations with, with, uh, Congressman Finley, were you able to get more perspectives on why he saved all these documents on what he hoped to achieve on, things that he thought, thought were really important.
1: Um, well, like I said, it was a, a great honor to get to know him both professionally and personally. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, being able to have... Um that, that window of time, um, as a steward of a collection to be able to, to know someone, um, and have that chance. Um, I'm eternally grateful for it. Um, and, you know, looking back oftentimes I'd, you know, wish I'd like, Oh, why didn't I ask you know, this question or that question, but
0: that always happens.
1: But what sticks out to me is, you know, just that, um, you know, sometimes more informal conversations or, you know, kind of throwaway remarks, um, that really, I think, um, allowed me as a person and a professional to, to, to really feel empowered and help convey that. Um, so I, um, in addition to, you know, leading the museum and archive, I also, um, was an administrative faculty member. And so I taught in our department of history, philosophy, political science, and religion. And so I would teach courses on museum studies and digital history and archival methods. And, um, I, you know, would often use some of primary sources from the Museum and Archive, obviously, and engage our students in that capacity, but um, I remember one semester the students were doing um, a, a capstone project specifically on proposing a new exhibition for the Campus Museum. You know, they curated a list, they talked about how they would engage different audiences, and it you know, really invited students to, to think about primary sources in a different way. And um, I had mentioned to the late Mr. Fenley at the time that, oh, well, you know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have finals and the students are going to implement their projects and I can, I can tell you how it goes. And he's like, well, let me know what I can do to help um, and when you'd like me to be there. And I mentioned that to the students and they were like, Wait, what? <laughs> um, he's, he's, is he gonna? Is he gonna grade the papers? Is he gonna be there what while we're doing idea. our final presentation? <laughs> yeah,
0: there's no intimidation factor um, there.
1: Yeah, so you know, um, but I think it just spoke to how um, they again that idea of being active stakeholders, students as stakeholders, those emerging professionals to have those transferable skills and realize that you know. This is a really unique opportunity, um, and they're in a, a special place to help not only tell stories, but, um, you know, help create connections, um, and so that was really exciting, and yeah. um, again, being able to um, transfer that experience in my in my role at, with the team at Maine Maritime Museum and thinking um, not only about what collections we have, but what collections don't we have in terms of addressing either gaps in our collection, mm-hmm. um thinking about how we can grow through our collections development plan to tell more inclusive stories um, and engage different audiences um, whose stories maybe have been um, you know historically repressed or marginalized. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know that's important, critical work happening everywhere. Um, but how can we do that um, and continue to do it well?
0: And that, that's one of the things that we, we look for here because we don't take everything that, that's offered to us. And I'm sure you you all have a some sort of collections process as well to determine mm-hmm. whether it's a right fit for you. Uh, what would you, if you were speaking to somebody who actually had something uh, on this podcast who's listening, what would you say are some of the things that you would love to see? Uh, you've got this collections gap. We have one. Uh, what's missing that you think really needs to be there? If you could create this magic artifact or manuscript.
1: Well, one thing I, I try and keep in mind, both internally for our team or externally when talking with potential donors or visitors, is you know, at the end of the day, we want to find the right home for history Um, and sometimes that's us and that's fantastic and sometimes if we're offered materials as part of our formal acquisitions process um, maybe it's not the best fit but what we're charged with as stewards is to think about well what might be the right home for it and so that's you know a wonderful part of the museum archive and library field working very closely together Um, you know right now prioritizing addressing gaps in our collection in terms of um, you know female um, persons of color voices, um, really thinking about looking at Maine's connection with our inland waterways, but also um, globally in terms of what our um, maritime and waterway stories are here at home, but then also that um, globalization reach and so that impact. So that that's a balancing act, right, in terms of um, telling local and global stories, um, collecting from near and far, right. um, and then and then really balancing it out.
0: Because when when you're talking the 1800s and shipbuilding in Bath, I mean the the workers by and large would be male. You had a very small. Popular, very small population of persons of color in Maine, uh, probably at, at that point, maybe 0.1%. Um, the materials, the manuscripts might be ship cap. I've seen these ship captain letters, but um, have you felt like letters from ship captains' wives or daughters that can fill that, that need?
1: yeah so um you know we're still going through the active process of making some of our archival collections more accessible and right. really thinking about not only that preservation but the digitization and access engagement. So again, a nod to our incredible <laughs> volunteer team yeah. um, as well as you know past interns. Um,
0: and I don't think people realize the difficulty and they say, well, di- just digitize your collection, and the cost and labor involved in something like that is just astronomical. So it's great that you have volunteers for that.
1: Well, and, um, you know, that short and long-term lens of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, creating digital content and ensuring that it's, you know, solid digital content for long-term preservation as well. Um, So our collections and library services manager is incredible and has a really good sense of, you know, not only what do we have, but in terms of our pipeline for ongoing projects. So there's no shortage of projects. And so our exciting challenge is to really prioritize that now in terms of of, so, for example, one of our current special exhibitions um, is called Women Behind the Lens, um, and our exhibitions coordinator curated it. It's amazing, and it takes three different collections highlighting women photographers from the 19th century and lifts up um, their lens, their perspective, yeah. literally, and um, taking a look at um, the, uh, you know— Uh, vessel building industry, um, as well as, um, travel, transportation, and really looking at different scenes in, um, the, the Southern Maine community, um, with their perspective, um, you know, and as...
0: Were Were all those women from Maine?
1: Correct. Correct. That's
0: fantastic. Oh, that's really
1: interesting. Yeah. And um, it's the the first, um, you know, it's the, the largest, first um, historical photograph collection of women that the museum's ever hosted. Um, in some cases, you know, these photographs have never been seen before. So the exhibition is incredible, Women Behind the Lens. Right. <laughs> um, and it, How
0: long is that going to be available?
1: Um, it's up through uh, mid January 2024. Okay. Um, and so the exhibition's incredible, but it's really only, you know, the surface, right? So there's so many more photographs that were not able to be featured. Within the exhibition, and yeah. so our again our exhibition coordinator had to make some tough decisions. Um, but now yeah. behind the scenes, we have incredible volunteers who are helping not only digitize the photographs, um, some from you know glass slides, yeah. glass plate negatives, um, but they're also you know updating and adding descriptive metadata um, to describe what's what are oh. in these images and to make them more accessible for visitors online, which is incredible so really thinking That's about fantastic. no shortage of projects but how can we prioritize the projects that we'd like to get done that lift up um, again previously underrepresented or marginalized mm-hmm. perspectives
0: yeah we, had, we were very fortunate we had there was a uh, college student who was a graphics uh, they were studying graphics and they wanted to work with us and we had this old collection from one of the I think it was one of the Arctic expeditions and a lot of the glass plates were cracked or whatever. And he was able to digitize them in a way that a lot of the faults were eliminated. So we were able to make uh, some of those available online. And what a, what a great opportunity to leverage uh, with people who are learning and who are the experts. Um, is there anything else you want to cover on the? You're presenting tomorrow, and I know when this comes out, it might be a couple of months from now because <laughs> we're doing about uh, fourteen or fifteen interviews. Uh, is there anything anything else with your case studies or that you'd like to really mention?
1: Um, well, I'm presenting with a couple of incredible colleagues. Um, so one of my colleagues from Maine Maritime Museum, Sarah Tim, our director of education, she and I are going to be collaborating on that Maine College of Art and Design project. But Sarah will also be lifting up um, a different experiential learning opportunity that our museum was involved in through a partnership with Bowdoin College, mm-hmm. their Africana Studies program, where um, we wanted to, as an institution, explore Maine's connection to the slave trade in terms of looking at how is Maine part of this conversation? Um, that maybe hasn't been explored. Mm -hmm. Um, But the museum wanted to do so um, in partnership with um, stakeholders who could tell the story in a very meaningful and informed way. So partnering with faculty experts at Bowdoin College, partnering with students who, again, this idea of emerging experts, of engaged stakeholders. um, And so partnering with this undergraduate class to really dive into these primary sources, not only do hands-on research at the museum, but ultimately put together an exhibition Cotton Town that looks at Maine's connection in a different way, and so Sarah will be. Um, we'll have looked at this case study um, as part of this dynamic panel, um, which includes um, a colleague of yours from the uh, Navy Academy Museum. So really thinking about how can you engage different audiences, connect with collections in those different ways, and make content more accessible. So
0: I think that uh, is just such a a great mission for museums is, is direct outreach to the general public. I mean, academic communities tend to write, you know, for each other. And I say that as somebody who's sort of an academic. I'm more of a blue-collar scholar. Samantha, where can listeners find more information about the Maine Maritime Museum?
1: Um, our website is a great place to, to start. We're also on social media, so a great chance to look behind the scenes um, and see what we're doing in terms of not only our exhibition program, but again, um, you know, we have uh, a boat building team. Um, we're really active in the community. We're, we're very engaged in learning from our neighbors um, and really, um, you know, joining a conversation in the in Bath in Maine. Um, and so uh, yeah, we'd love to, to see our visitors.
0: Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate you coming in.
1: Yeah. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks.
0: And I hope you enjoyed another episode of the Purple Hall Naval History Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please leave feedback wherever you're listening to this and have a great day.